take your copies of God's Word and open them again with me to that Old Testament history book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the name of this leader that God had called to return to Jerusalem. He was cupbearer to the king in Persia, cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in the middle of the 5th century BC. And God led him as a descendant, a member of the people of Israel, to return back to his homeland of Judah to help rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem that had fallen and to help to rebuild the city there. This morning we'll be in Nehemiah chapters 6 and 7. As I was reading these chapters and preparing uh, this past week, I, I thought a lot about the human emotion of fear. And fear is a fascinating emotion. It's absolutely universal. Every single culture in human history has known fear. There's not a human being in history that has not known what it is to be afraid of something. Now, psychologists define fear as a reaction to something that threatens our safety or our security. It's an emotion that brings a very focused response to some sort of perceived danger in order to protect ourselves or to protect someone else. And for the person with arachnophobia, they will either, upon seeing a spider, kill it or run screaming like a little girl away from it. I, usually the latter, not the former. Either way... Whether you kill the spider or you run from the spider, your personal safety is still intact, right? But for the person who understands that most spiders pose no real danger, again, not me, they can simply walk past the spider, leave it alone, ignore it. Maybe if, it, if they're particularly curious, like some of my children, pick it up and play around with it and then place it safely outside. It's not only fear that motivates and focuses us. It's not just fear that, that evokes uh, uh, an emotional response or calls us to action, but specifically what we fear. What we fear is what brings about uh, a response. In the case of the arachnophobic, it's not really a fear of spiders. It's a fear of personal safety, personal health. It's a fear for bodily integrity. I don't want to get bit by a spider. I don't want to feel creeped out by the thing. And so I run from it. So it's not just fear itself. It's not just the emotion that's there, but it's what we fear, the object of our fear that really evokes that response. We know, though, biblically speaking, that, that fear is not always a negative thing. As we read in our call to worship this morning from Revelation chapter 14, a call to fear God, which is not for the Christian a call to live in terror of God, to either fight against him because you're afraid of him or run away from him because you're afraid of him, but rather to fear God in worship, in awe, in wonder, in respect, in reverence for all that he is. This morning we'll see Nehemiah faced with potential fear of his enemies and weighing that against his fear of the Lord. And we'll see which one of those wins out. Fear of enemies, fear of the Lord, fear for safety, fear for faithfulness. Which of those wins out and which of those brings focus to Nehemiah's life? And not just his, but the life of the people of Judah. In Nehemiah 6 and 7, resistance uh, against the building of the wall, and specifically resistance against Nehemiah and his leadership, will escalate in these chapters from those familiar enemies that we've met before, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. But it is Nehemiah's fear of God, above his fear of his enemies, above his fear of man, that focuses his efforts so that the wall around the city is built and so that the people of Judah are gathered together within the city as God's people once more. The idea that comes to us, the, the key thought that comes to us from 
Nehemiah 6 and 7 this morning is this, that those who fear the Lord are focused to bring Him glory. Those who fear the Lord are focused to bring Him glory. Let us then, as we see this truth in God's Word, fear the Lord and so be focused as His people on the mission that He has given to us. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word, Nehemiah chapter 6. If you follow along in your Bibles, you can read the text on the screens behind me as well. Nehemiah, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues this, uh, his personal memoir and history of the people. He says, Now when Senballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Senballat and Geshem came to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakifarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop while I, uh, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that's why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now let us come and take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. And when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I am run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood that God had, sent, God had not sent him, but had pronounced the prophecy against me. But, uh, he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Mesholam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is God's word. You may be seated. Those who fear the Lord are focused to bring Him glory. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, we see four fearful attempts to stop God's people, and specifically to stop Nehemiah. Here in chapter 6 of Nehemiah's personal memoir and story of the history of, pe- uh, uh, of the people of Judah rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, Jerusalem, goodness, I'm tongue-tied this morning, 
the leader that God has chosen in Nehemiah, he gets back to the story of the wall. In chapter 5, there was an internal problem among the people, but now Nehemiah returns to the rebuilding of the wall. And as we're accustomed to seeing in the course of this book, anytime God's work is the focus of his people, the enemies of God gather to stop it. Sometimes their tactic is just to distract or demoralize the people, as it was from Sembalat and Tobiah in the earlier chapters of Nehemiah. But now here in chapter 6, as the work goes on and gets closer and closer to being finished, in fact, the whole wall is completed except for the gates being put into place, the enemy's tactic shifts. Now they resort to striking fear in the heart of the leader of the Jews, Nehemiah, in order to start, stop the work. Nehemiah really is the key link in the chain here. When Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem first came against the people in, the, in Nehemiah chapter 2, they taunted the Jews, they teased them, they uh, uh, hurled insults at them. But Nehemiah's resolute trust in God led the people to trust in God as well, and so they moved forward. When later, the enemies of the Jews, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, when they threatened violence against the Jews, it was Nehemiah who rallied the people together within the city, uh, within the city walls, and reminded them that God strong and mighty, would fight for them. And even when the people seemed turned against themselves, as we saw last week in chapter 5, the rich against the poor, it was Nehemiah whose fear of the Lord fueled him to lead all of the Jewish nobles to repent of their sin of abusive lending to the poor people among them. And so now here, in chapter 6, as the work on the wall continues, the leaders of the nations rally together again, specifically now, to cut off Nehemiah by striking fear in his heart. So they start, first of all, with feigned diplomacy. This is the first of their fearful attempts to stop the work. Feigned diplomacy, false diplomacy. We see this in verses 1 through 4. The three leaders of the nation, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, first try to lure Nehemiah out of the city through, a falsified, through falsified diplomatic relations. They say something like, Nehemiah, come out to this neutral place, the plain of Ono. It's equidistant between where we live and where you live. It's a, it's a happy neutral ground. Come meet with us there so we can be diplomatic about this whole thing. Nehemiah quickly realizes that their intent is to lure him out under the guise, under the pretense of being good international neighbors, playing healthy politics, trying to lure him out of the city under, under that pretense in order to harm him or kill him. But Nehemiah, fearing the Lord and not man, is undeterred from his task. He replies to Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem so matter-of-factly, essentially saying, I'm too busy. <laughs> we have a massive project going on here, and its success is far more important than, than international relations right now. I can't come to you. What a wise response by Nehemiah. In the face of those who seek to do him harm, his worshipful, reverent fear of God over any fear for his own safety keeps him focused on the task that God has given him. The enemies of God, Satan himself, will often seek to do harm to the work of God's people by simply offering to come together for a common cause. I presently observe that this is the most common tactic of Satan in our modern political environment. Political parties and politicians, left, right, and center, up, down, middle, green, purple, red, blue. Political parties see Christians simply as a voting block. Votes to be had. Friends, you understand that's how politicians see you, right? You are currency to their political success. Understand that. Now, now, by God's grace, there are some who are not that way. But by and large, that's how, that's how the church, that's how Christians are treated by every, by every politician. 
a vote to be had. Satan, that great enemy of the gospel, is more than happy, dear friends, to distract Christians like us from the work of the gospel with empty promises of earthly political success in order to convince us that the most important things in the world are things like preserving this or that amendment of the Constitution or pursuing social justice. So the most important thing in the world is protecting borders. Politicians who seek Christians to vote for them want to make these the real problems that we face. And the real answers to the world's problems are just fixing these things. And in so doing, they seek to distract us from the divine mandate to make disciples of Jesus Christ from all nations. As the church, as Christians in the 21st century, we must seriously consider, dear friends, how are we being played by Satan in this hotly charged political moment as he is toying with our lesser fears only to keep us from seeing that the world's greatest need is to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Come together. Let's, Let's come together on this political issue. Christians, and in so doing, don't worry about the gospel stuff because this is the really important thing. That gospel stuff can wait, right? How many of us need to learn to say to our cable news networks and our Twitter feeds and our social media influencers, I'm too busy to play this game. I've got more important gospel work to do. Unsuccessful after four attempts at feigned diplomacy, Sanballat tries another tactic. He tries to frighten Nehemiah through false accusations. We see this in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. His next tactic now is to, after four unsuccessful tries to lure Nehemiah out of the city, now to send a messenger with an unsealed letter to Nehemiah, perhaps sent to other surrounding nations as well. Nehemiah calls it an open letter. And in the letter, Sanballat claims that the Jews, that there's rumor that the Jews are building the wall around the city in order to stage a revolt against the Persian king Artaxerxes and to install Nehemiah as their king. Now, Sanballat says in his letter, we can't have... Artaxerxes thinking these rumors are true about you, Nehemiah, can we? Let's get together to talk about this. Nehemiah sees right through the lies that Sambalat is writing and the rumors that he's spreading in his letter. And fearing his reputation with the God of all truth more than he fears the empty lies of God's enemies, Nehemiah calls the situation what it is. You're making this all up, Sambalat. And I'm not even going to dignify your lies with a personal defense. Instead, Nehemiah turns in quiet prayer to God in heaven. In verse 9, to strengthen his hands to do the work that God has called him to do in the face of this fearful attempt to stop the work. Christian, are you tempted to lash out in return when you are falsely accused of being a bigot for holding fast to God's design for marriage and sexuality? Are you tempted to be well thought of by co-workers who see you as old-fashioned and closed-minded because you really believe sin is a huge problem for us? Is your fear of what people think of you overriding your confidence in who you are in Christ? Turn your attention then this morning to the only true God. Find your identity in Him and lean on Him for strength to walk in the integrity of Christ Jesus. Sanballat tries feigned diplomacy, tries false accusations, and neither of those work. And so now he, he and Tobiah and Geshem ramp up the stakes a little bit more. Their third attempt to stop Nehemiah from the work is subterfuge. I love that word, subterfuge. That's your word of the week this week. 
Nehemiah describes this attempt in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 6. Subterfuge is a word that means deceptive trickery or double-crossing. This is exactly what happens when a man named Shemaiah, who is probably a priest in Israel, invites Nehemiah to visit him in his house. Now, Shemaiah is locked in his home, confined to his home, Nehemiah tells us, probably because he was somehow ritually unclean, and he was waiting out the period of his uncleanness before he returned to the temple to serve there. But Shemaiah tells Nehemiah in the form of a prophetic oracle that his enemies are coming to kill him by night. Even tonight, Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you. And the only way to escape is if we go into the temple and lock the doors behind us to be safe there. As Shemaiah is talking, God in his grace reveals to Nehemiah that Shemaiah is prophesying falsely, that he's full of it. And that he's actually a double agent working for the enemy. That Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem have, have come together to hire not just Shemaiah, but a prophetess named Noadiah and other prophets within the people to, uh, among the people to try to deter Nehemiah by speaking false prophecy to him, saying, the Lord has said, when in fact the Lord has not said, and so to distract Nehemiah from doing what he's doing. Even worse, to get Nehemiah to discredit himself by going into the temple when Nehemiah himself knew he was not allowed to do so. Because Nehemiah fears the Lord and his word, Nehemiah knows that as one who is not a priest or a Levite, he doesn't come from that priestly tribe of Levi, that Nehemiah cannot enter the temple the way that Shemaiah is inviting him to do so. Some Bible scholars have even suggested that Nehemiah, because he was a servant to the Persian king Artaxerxes, Nehemiah may have been made a eunuch for his service. And Nehemiah knows the word of God, that eunuchs are barred from worship, from gathering within the confines of the temple. Because he fears the Lord, Nehemiah says to Shemaiah, I have no right to sinfully use the place of God's worship for my own self-preservation. Moreover, what sort of coward would I be to run from people like Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem? Satan, that ancient serpent from the Garden of Eden until now, has known the very powerful allure of human preservation and self-promotion. He knows how tempting it is to preserve yourself or promote yourself. And he will not hesitate to tempt you to take opportunities to save your skin or to platform your pride, only to discredit the witness of the gospel in your life. Christian, do you love Christ and his gospel even more than your own life? You must, if you are to resist the sneaky lies and subterfuge of God's enemies. There are three fearful attempts made to stop Nehemiah from moving forward on building the wall. And then we get a short interlude after this third uh, unsuccessful attempt. And in this interlude, we find out in verses 15 and 16 that the wall gets finished anyway. In just two verses, we see the result of Nehemiah's God-fearing focus. In just 52 days, not even two full months, I can't do anything in the course of two months, but the people of Judah, in the course of 52 days, complete the whole wall around the city. The work was begun in August, it was finished in October, and verse 15 feels like a massive understatement of the achievement. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Everything about Nehemiah up to this point has been about finishing the wall. And when the wall actually gets done, this is how Nehemiah announces it. The wall was finished. (laughs) Nehemiah knows that that this is the, the, the completion of the wall. Nehemiah knows that this is not their achievement. This isn't something that he and the people have done. But this is God's achievement. This is God's success. 
God was the one who called his people, who placed his hand on Nehemiah, who provided through the Persian king all the resources for rebuilding the wall. God who defended the project. God who gave wisdom and strength to his people to finish. This is God's work. And not only do Nehemiah and the Jews see that this is God's work, but as verse 16 shows us, the people of the nation see it too. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In spite of everything that was thrown against them, from the enemies of God and of his purposes, the enemies of his people, through everything that they had at Nehemiah and the people, and nothing stopped the work. The wall was finished in 52 days, praise God. But even after the wall is finished, it doesn't stop the enemies of God and his people from trying to make fearful attempts to further hinder the work of God among his people. And so in verses 17 through 19, we see a fourth, ultimately unsuccessful, but fearful attempt to deter Nehemiah, this time through spiteful intimidation. We have feigned diplomacy, false accusations, subterfuge, now spiteful intimidation. It's interesting to note that when God does great things, even among his people, that God's enemies don't let up. The wall is finished, but the, the, the resistance to God's work has not, complete, has not completed The wall is done in verse 17, but Tobiah, that Ammonite servant, won't stop agonizing Nehemiah. We find here in these verses a very complicated nature of Tobiah's relationship to the Jews. He's not just any enemy from among the nations, but he's an enemy who has intermarried with the family of some Jewish nobles. This is like general hospital type soap opera stuff. There's nothing that Tobiah can do. Now that the wall is done, there's nothing Tobiah can do to stop God's work at this point. It's finished. The wall's done. But his spite, his hatred, his disregard toward Nehemiah continues. He has so much just hatred built up in in his heart for this leader of God's people. And so Tobiah uses his relationships that he's he's manipulated through his marriage uh, among the Jewish families of Jewish nobles. He uses these relationships to gather gossipy information. And to get those people within the people of the Jews who know him to talk well of him to Nehemiah. All the while he starts sending letters to Nehemiah to intimidate him. Spiteful intimidation. Understand this, dear Christian. Sin and death and Satan have all been defeated by Christ in his death on the cross for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead. But though Satan's ultimate defeat is inevitable... It has not stopped him from clawing both tooth and nail to keep God's people afraid of him. Tobiah's spiteful antagonism of Nehemiah is a picture of this ages-long conflict between the enemies of God and the people of God. Just because you are in Christ, dear friend, and doing focused gospel work in the world, this does not make you immune to Satan's wiles. So stay on your guard. Cling close to Jesus. Fear God above all, that you may endure spiteful intimidation, even for the glory of God, being undeterred in the work that he's called you to do. In light of these four fearful attempts to stop Nehemiah and his work, and by the way, that brief interlude that, hey, the wall was finished, big success, we learn this and apply this to our lives this way. The, The fear of God, and by fear of God, I mean the worship of God, not the terror of God, but the reverence, the awe, the wonder that we give to him. The fear of God focuses his people to do great things for his glory. Fearing God, worshiping God above all else, being being more concerned with what God thinks of us and what God has commanded us to do, more than we fear for our own safety in this world, gives us great and, and clear, sharp focus in order to do great things for his glory. 
We've seen this clearly in Nehemiah's life. But Nehemiah's resistance of the ploys of God's enemies is not our best inspiration for fearing God and focusing on his work. In fact, even Nehemiah, as well as he does in his life, is not himself a perfect resistor of temptation. Nehemiah is not a perfect example of fearing God and resisting the enemies of God. Nehemiah, like us, is a son of Adam, born in sin. To resist well, dear friends, we have to come to know him who resisted perfectly. Not Nehemiah, and not another son of Adam, but the only son of God, Jesus. Jesus, too, God in human flesh, was accosted and tempted by Satan. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, that Jesus was in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem for 40 days, fasting and praying, preparing for the beginning of his public ministry. And there he was approached by that ancient serpent and invited three times to forego his fearful love of the Father in order to use his divinity for his own self-service. And each time Jesus responds to the temptation of Satan, the first time saying, I will not use my divine power to serve myself. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I will not test the love of the Father. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He says to the temptation of Satan, I will not give up my worship of the Father even to gain this world. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The Lord Jesus' focused worship of God the Father ensured that he would be the perfect and sinless Savior of all who rely on him for the forgiveness of sin. Friend, this morning, are you aware, acutely aware of your sin, of your moral disregard for God's holiness and the purpose for which he's made you? You can be forgiven today. And there is hope and there is power for overcoming temptation and sin in the future. There is hope and power for not being a victim to death and eternal separation in hell from God. But there is rather hope in Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and was raised from the dead to make you right with God. Friend, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get sinless before you come to God. You come to Christ by faith and trust, reliance upon him first, and he will make you clean and give you the hope of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life in the presence of God. Dear friend, if you are daily faced with the accusations and the guilt thrown at you from the enemy of God who wants to always make you feel like you can't overcome the hardest things in your life. Dear friend, this morning, turn in faith to Jesus who overcame everything on your behalf so that you might have life in his name. Those who fear God are focused to do great things for his glory. And we see these four fearful attempts that are made against the people of Judah and against Nehemiah to stop them from this work. And we see how all of those attempts fail because the people fear God more than men. But then in chapter 7, we see in light of this success of building the wall, resisting uh, the, uh, those who had been opposing God, we see a display of one awesome God with his gathered people. This one awesome God that his people fear gathers his people together under his name. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Nehemiah says, Now, when the wall had been built, and I'd set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened, 
until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, those who returned from exile in Persia the first time over about a hundred years before. And I found written in it these many names and numbers that are listed throughout the rest of chapter 7. So here's the gates are installed in the wall. Now everything's really finished because now there's doors in place to keep people in or out or allow access. Nehemiah places trusted men, Hanani, his brother, and Hananiah to watch over the gates. The city within the walls, though, still lies in ruins. The homes haven't been rebuilt yet, and not many people are living in the city. And so as verse 5 says, God puts it into the heart of Nehemiah to gather the people of God within the city of God. And so looking through the books in the city, he finds a genealogy that was written down. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 is almost a a direct replication of a list that's given to us in Ezra chapter 2. And in that genealogy, he reads the names and the numbers of the 42,000 faithful members of Judah who returned to the city from exile in Persia. These and their relatives would be those that Nehemiah would bring back into the city of God to populate it and to rebuild from within. And it's here that we find that the God of the Bible is known by the worship of his gathered people. And this will become all the more clear even as we see uh, next week in Nehemiah chapter 8. Worship is the purpose of our creation, of mankind's creation. And it's the purpose of our redemption and rescue from sin, to worship God. But it's not merely private worship that God has made us for, not just worship in our own homes, in our own hearts, in our own way, but public gathered worship of his people. This is the purpose of the genealogy in Nehemiah chapter 7 to demonstrate that the one awesome God who empowers the building of the wall is known not by lifeless walls, but through the life-giving praises of his people who he knows by name. God is not just rebuilding a city in Nehemiah, dear friends. He's rebuilding his people. Perhaps that's why the statement of the completion of the wall seems so understated in verse 15. Because the building of the wall kind of isn't even the point. It's the regathering, the rebuilding of God's people who are his living beacons of his glory to the nations. God's not just rebuilding a city, he's rebuilding his people. And his people, dear friends, are not anonymous. Notice how many names are listed specifically in Nehemiah chapter 7. This same truth rings out that God's people are not anonymous. They are known by name, not just by God, but also by the people of God. This same truth rings out from the New Testament too. As the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ and repentance from sin is proclaimed by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, men and women by the thousands are added to the number of the new covenant people of God. If somebody's counting, somebody's also taking names. We know who, who has covenanted together with us in Christ. God's people are known not only by Him, but God's people are also known by the assembly of the redeemed. And by their gathered worship. Nehemiah 7 shows us one awesome God in the context of his gathered people fearing and worshiping him. Know this this morning, friends, that God calls his people to be known by their worship of him. By their fear of him. Something that Nehemiah displays in his own life. The fear of God, the worship of God focuses his work. And then God focuses his people around their gathered worship. 
This is why we gather to worship every week. Because we've come to know God through Christ His Son. And because we have come to know the purpose for which God has saved us. To bring Him praise and honor and glory as His gathered people in the world. More than our mercy toward others in need. And even more than our good deeds done in the name of Jesus. More even than our preaching of the gospel. Essential as all of these things are to the Christian life. We are meant to be known by our focused worship. Our focused fear of the one true God and His Son Jesus Christ. And we know that our focused worship is what actually fills our mercy. It's what fills our kind deeds done in the name of Jesus. Our worship is what fills our gospel preaching with real significance and compelling power. Can you imagine somebody preaching the gospel of salvation to someone else when they themselves don't really worship the God that they're preaching about? How lifeless a gospel do they preach? God desires to be known among his people by by their worship of him, by their fear of him. And our worship of God is what leads us, our love for God, our recognition of his glory, his majesty, his splendor, is what drives us to proclaim the gospel to others, that they may know this God too and so love and worship him. This is also why, church, we care about practicing meaningful church membership as a church, why we care to know our members by name. Why we don't have a bloated church roll of thousands with only 150 or so in worship on a Sunday. Because no one is saved accidentally except for by the grace of God received in willing reliance upon Jesus. So also ought every member of the local church be one who can give willing and confident public testimony to their own heart's worship and submission to Jesus as Lord. God's people are not anonymous. They're not anonymous to God and they're not meant to be anonymous to each other. So in as much as we've come to know God and to fear Him rightly, to worship Him rightly, so also do we desire for our worship to further focus our attention and our joy and our life together upon the God who saves us. And as a church, we have opportunity regularly to put feet to our worship, to put feet to our faith in the public assembly of of the church as we share in what we call the Lord's Supper together. This simple meal of a piece of bread and a cup that we drink together symbolizes on the one hand the body of Jesus Christ which was broken for us and on the other hand his blood which was spilled for the atonement, for cleansing uh, uh, of his people from their sins. As we take this meal together, we, we do literally take it Together, we take it as a church. This is not a private meal meant to be taken in the the privacy and anonymity of your own homes. This is a meal that Jesus gives to his church to take together as they, on the one hand, remember the Lord that they have come to worship and the price of our sin that was paid by his blood, by his life for us. But also we come together to eat this meal together to remember who the church is. Not, and not just that we are known by God, but that we're also known by each other through the unity, through the common bond of faith that we have in Jesus Christ. There's one awesome God who demonstrates his glory in his gathered people. And those who worship him, those who have come to fear him are known by their worship. In a moment, we're going to take these elements together, this Lord's Supper commemorating Christ's death for us and his resurrection from the grave and most especially our faith, our trust, our reliance upon him to demonstrate, to demonstrate that we are not only known to God, praise God that we are, but also known by one another as his assembled people 
to worship and live to bring Him glory in all that we do. Now this meal that we take together, this Lord's Supper, is a meal that's for Christians, which means that it's a, it's a meal that is taken by those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, who have, who have repented of their sin and come to rely upon Jesus as their only Lord and Savior, the only one who can save them from their sin and make them right with God the Father. It is for those who have made their profession of faith in Jesus public through baptism by immersion. And for those who, having placed faith in Jesus, been baptized, are also living consistently with their profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. You don't have to be a member of First Baptist West Albuquerque this morning to share in the Lord's Supper with us, but we do ask that you say that these things are true of you, that you've come to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Your life is submitted to Him as master and commander, that you have turned from your sin, you've been baptized through immersion as a public display of your faith in Jesus, and that you're walking consistently with Jesus as your, as your Lord. Parents and grandparents, some of you may have children or grandchildren with you this morning who have not yet made public professions of faith this way. Uh, don't mean to be rude, but this meal is not for them. Instead, it's an opportunity for you, parents and grandparents, to remind your children of the gospel of the price that was paid for their sin, to to proclaim the gospel to your children one more time and invite them to trust Jesus as Lord as well. And not just so they get a a fancy little snack on Sunday. By the way, kids, it's really not all that fulfilling. (laughs) But to trust Jesus so that they can have their souls fed. So that they they can eat the bread of life, which is Christ himself. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're visiting with us, Or perhaps you've been worshiping with us for a long time, but you're not yet a Christian. Or maybe you're realizing this morning for the first time, you're you're not a Christian the way that the Bible describes it. In that case, this meal is not for you either. And that's not to distinguish or be discriminatory in any way. But if you were to take this meal, you'd be proclaiming things about yourself that are not true. We care about your integrity. We care about your honesty. And we'd rather not give you, we would rather ask you to withhold yourself from this table, from this meal, rather than to give you false assurance of a salvation that you don't have yet. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and Pastor Danny's going to come and, and uh, to, to lead us in a song of response. And as he's leading us in the song of response, I'm going to invite you to come forward. We have two tables up here uh, with the elements in, in trays. It's an all-in-one kind of deal, so you can just grab one and return to your seats. Um, don't take it yet. We're going to take the meal all together. But as we come forward, uh, uh, I'll be sitting here on the front. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you're realizing, I don't know Christ and I need to today, let today be the day of salvation and faith for you. Come meet with me. Let's begin talking and praying together about how you can have assurance of your right relationship with God, even as you witness the rest of the body of Christ rejoicing in the fellowship we have with God and with one another because of our faith in Jesus. Uh, Friends, as we come forward, there may be some who are providentially hindered from being able to get up from their seats. I would invite you, uh, particularly men of the church, just look around you for a moment, see if there's someone who may need to be served where they're at, and and just extend an invitation to to serve them and grab another element or two and bring it to those around you who may need to be served. But let me pray for us, and as we do, prepare our hearts to receive these elements from the Lord's table, reminding ourselves of the gospel. Pray with me.